that, the pain of that. There's nobody in this room who doesn't carry, nobody living now who doesn't carry pain for our world, despite their po politics. Their politics get crazier the more they try to separate themselves from their pain. We're seeing a lot of crazy politics now, and a lot of blaming other people, and a lot of divisive politics, because there is this terrible anguish, and we've got to find somebody to blame for it, instead of being able to be with the pain. And then when you be with it, you find that where it springs from is our profound interconnectedness. You're experiencing the trauma of your larger body. And do you know that that is what we want, to know that interconnectedness, that true nature, that paticca samupada, the co-arising, the web, Indra's net. And that's where the joy comes from. So in some, often I have found the pain itself can be a doorway. If you go through the doorway, you find the joy. A joy of such vitality and of such love. And so the pain spring the hinge on which the pain and the joy come <coughs> is that same place. It's love. It's that act. Have some pasta. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like in a world where there is the pain and all that, that those who have a capacity to be generous My experience is that the, that that petrification that of generosity and of just that stasis uh, happens when there's a fear of the pain or trying to control it. But just letting it be, it's impermanent like everything else. It's, it's your response to, to the situation which is. And one of the great things about the practice that you're doing here in uh, Vipassana practice is the training to be with what comes up whether you like it or not. You're just there. And I draw on that now even to have to read the newspaper. But the world needs our presence. Our deepest desire, I believe, is to be present to the world, fully present. That's our bodhisattva nature. And that uh, requires our being able to be there whether uh, it hurts or not, 
whether we like it this way or not. We don't have to prove of it, but to just be there. Makes it simpler in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your practice toward mosquitoes? <laughs> do, you, do you love them? Um, why are they there? <laughs> well, you know, I don't. Um, um, think about that a lot. <laughs> I love repellent. (laughs) Um, And uh, I often catch myself swatting them. I haven't reached a point where I'm very allergic, so a mosquito bite can give me a big... um, where I can uh, watch a mosquito bite me uh, with equanimity <laughs> and not. What's yours? Um, I wonder about this because I saw a film clip of the Dalai Lama when he was asked the same question. Oh. Three strikes and you're out. <laughs> How did he know it was the same as Exactly. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> <It's very lively. laughs> oh. Yes? It was my experience in India. Even using mosquito nets, they managed to get in through little holes. And for a while, I would be hunting them Thank you. Um, in your story about Signora Pavicini, um, all I could think of was her saying, if I only had more space. And that some space. Some space. Yeah, she didn't have any at all. But I, I guess I didn't get to the place that she was being generous. I kept getting... I kept getting stuck on that if I only had 
something, then I would be okay. And, and so every time when I was stopped with the person and you'd say, okay, see where Senora is there, I kept realizing I had to open myself more because Oh, I, that metaphor to, didn't work for you. I, the tendency was to pull back because she wanted more. And so my tendency was or she, that I had to be... Oh, confident. did anyone else have that? You did too, that this was... Uh, why, but why did she want it? It came up in our talk at the oh. end because it's like um, my partner said something I say in my life a lot. If I only had more time... You know, if I, same kind of thing. So it forced me to open myself more because as soon as you said the senora, I had this thing about, oh, if I only had, if I could only close my eyes and walk away from this, then I'd be okay. <laughs> and, and so then it made me say, okay, I have to open my eyes bigger and, and open my heart and try to be more conscious. Um, so thank you for that. But Thank you. It, it was also the image of the hands was really amazing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that my eyes were closed and the woman that I was with was very receptive. And But the images of being a fish and then uh, I went through the birth of my children coming out and the first thing you look at, I looked at was their hands and them clasping mm -hmm. and, and that I had never thought as much, although I've always looked at people's hands about how many things hands have done through time, and it was really wonderful. I think it was really wonderful. Could you speak a little bit about anger and using anger skillfully? Are there questions about anger? Um, You know, you could spend a whole day on that and a whole weekend and a whole week. I want to say that um, I take issue with those Buddha, Buddhist teachers who call the three poisons greed, anger, and ignorance. call one of the poisons, identify one of the poisons that cause suffering to be by the term anger rather than hatred or hostility. Anger can be extremely useful and appropriate. Anger is a signal that relationship is damaged. It is an arm of justice. And often those who tell us to sit on our anger want us to sit in the status quo. So we don't need to give anger greater blow it up by resistance to it, but just treat it as a passing feeling. A 
as all our feelings are impermanent and don't try to turn it into, distort it into call it by calling it, uh, distort uh, by identifying it with hatred or hostility as is uh, done by some great Buddhist teachers. Even the Dalai Lama, I've heard him do this. Whom I, and I revere him. So, But I think that this is an inheritance of the patriarchy. <clears throat> There's institutional reasons for having us eschew, phew, for having us avoid anger or quell anger. Uh, anger is subversive. Anger calls attention to what isn't working. Anger can be, I believe, entirely appropriate if we don't fuel it that was a, by our fear of it. Just let it see. And, and uh, I remember in completing my response to your question, uh, an instance in the Tibetan community that's a very important part of my life. Um, in Northwest India, a community in exile. And uh, I was in the puja room. They'd call me back for the teachings that I had referred to before. And a monk was showing me an extraordinary uh, new uh, rupa, new statue. Maybe, I don't know how many years it had been there, but I just hadn't really, they'd moved it out. And it was of a wrathful form of the Buddha. Oh, so such an embodiment of anger. And the eyes were bugging out, and the hair was on fire, and the teeth were fangs, and there were uh, coils of skulls and wrapping them in snakes around torso and limbs, and, and he had dagger in his three arms on the right side, and hearts, he human hearts dangling from the aorta in the... Um, left arms and, and the cutting out the heart of the three poisons. And so as all this was being pointed out to me, uh, my dear monk friend who was just the image of such great delicacy and equanimity and loving kindness. And he said, oh, such great anger. <laughs> such great anger, straight from the heart of compassion. Straight from the heart of compassion. So uh, that's been my experience. If we don't uh, turn it into uh, a weapon by being afraid of it. I've had a tendency toward anger in my life and I have um, let loose, particularly verbally. I'm very uh, quick with my... You've noticed I speak well. <laughs> when you should hear me when I'm angry, I, <laughs> it's like you can see flames coming out. My father was like that. <laughs> uh, so this has been a big, big issue for me in my life. So you people know how to touch into central issues. So... Uh, is this a new topic? Well, I'm not sure it's a topic of the day. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, how, uh, and maybe you address 
It's a question of um, not, I don't see it as giving it. It's a, it's a place to be. It's a dwelling place. It's, it's one of the aspects of the dwelling place in our interconnectedness, along with loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. And there, sometimes they become almost indistinguishable, as we were talking before about pain for the world. And so, in a situation of scarcity, um, you don't give it. You see if where it is. And maybe that's a good place to close, because our scarcity now is time. That you're not inventing these. We're not producing them. We're not making it up. These are just ascertained as aspects of this bodhisattva experience, or of our true experience being. And actually, I brought the she flipped chart in at the pain of that. There's nobody in this room who doesn't carry, nobody living now who doesn't carry pain for our world, despite their po politics. Their politics get crazier the more they try to separate themselves from their pain. Mm. We're seeing a lot of crazy politics now, and a lot of blaming other people, and a lot of divisive politics because there is this terrible anguish and we've got to find somebody to blame for it instead of being able to be with the pain. And then when you be with it, you find that where it springs from is our profound interconnectedness. You're experiencing the trauma of your larger body. Do you know that that is what we want? To know that interconnectedness, that true nature, that paticca samuppada, the co-arising, the web, Indra's net. And that's where the joy comes from. So in some... Often, I have found the pain itself can be a doorway. If you go through the doorway, you find the joy. A joy of such vitality and of such love. And so the pain spring, the hinge on which the pain and the joy <coughs> come, it's that same place, it's love. It's that act. Have some pasta. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like in a world where there is the pain 
propensity to be generous, use that to spread to joy that all that you can. Now that's there really isn't you know with, with the pain that exists. It, it, it's, it's good to recognize it, to acknowledge it, but not to be petrified by it. And if your generosity is petrified by it, then Uh, my experience is that the, that that petrification that of generosity and of just that stasis uh, happens when there's a fear of the pain or trying to control it. But just letting it be, it's impermanent like everything else. It's it's your response to to the situation which is. And one of the great things about the practice that you're doing here in uh, Vipassana practice is the training to be with what comes up whether you like it or not. You're just there. And I draw on that now even to have to read the newspaper. But the world needs our presence. Our deepest desire, I believe, is to be present to the world, fully present. That's our bodhisattva nature. And that uh, requires our being able to be there whether uh, it hurts or not. Whether we like it this way or not. We don't have to prove of it, but to just be there. Makes it simpler in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your practice toward mosquitoes? <laughs> do, you, do you love them? Um, why are they there? <laughs> well, you know, I don't. Um, um, think about that a lot. <laughs> I love repellent. <laughs> um, and uh, I often catch myself swatting them. I haven't reached a point where I'm very allergic, so a mosquito bite can give me a big, um, where I can uh, watch a mosquito bite me. Uh, with equanimity <laughs> and not. What's yours? Um, I wonder about this because I saw a film clip of the Dalai Lama where he was asked the same question. Oh. It's a tough question, I think. What did he say? He said that, um, I try to practice what he did says that when a mosquito likes on his arm, he uh, blows on it. When it comes back, he brushes it. And if it comes back again... <laughs>
That's right. Three strikes and you're out. <laughs> Yes. My experience in, in India, um, even using mosquito nets, they managed to get in through little holes. And for a while, I would be hunting them down, and before I went to sleep, I'd, you know, nail them and try to. And then I realized that there was more energy and worry uh, wasted in the worry of whether they would get me rather than just lying there and the short amount of feeling them and you can follow all the sensations as they go in and come out and then they're done and they're gone and they don't bother you after they've had their drop of blood and so the mental energy though waste of the anxiety is much greater than the actual sensation of letting them bite Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, in your story about Signora Pavagini, um, all I could think of was her saying, if I only had more space, and that some space. Some space. Yeah, she didn't have any at, at all. But I, I guess I didn't get to the place that she was being generous. I kept getting, I kept getting stuck on that. If I only had something, then I would be okay. And and so every time when I was stopped with the person, and you'd say, okay, see where Senora is there, I kept realizing I had to open myself more because. Oh, I, that metaphor to, didn't work for you. I, the tendency was to pull back because she wanted more. And so my tendency was or she, that I had to be... Very oh, confident. did anyone else have that? You did too, that this was... Uh, why, but why did she want it? It came up in our talk at the oh. end because it's like um, my partner said something I say in my life a lot. If I only had more time... You know, if I, same kind of thing. So it forced me to open myself more because as soon as you said the senora, I had this thing about, oh, if I only had, if I could only close my eyes and walk away from this, then I'd be okay. <laughs> and, and so then it made me say, okay, I have to open my eyes bigger and, and open my heart and try to be <coughs> more conscious. Um, so thank you for that. But Thank you. It, it was also the image of the hands was really amazing. Mm -hmm. And the fact that my eyes were closed and the woman that I was with was very receptive. And But the images of being a fish and then uh, I went through the birth of my children coming out and the first thing you look at, I looked at was their hands and them clasping mm -hmm. and, and that I had never thought as much, although I've always looked at people's hands about how many things hands have done through time, and it was really wonderful. I think it was really Could you speak a little bit about anger and using anger skillfully? The questions about anger. Um, 
You know, you could spend a whole day on that and a whole weekend and a whole week. I want to say that um, I take issue with those Buddha, Buddhist teachers who call the three poisons greed, anger, and ignorance. Call one of the poisons, identify one of the poisons that cause suffering to be by the term anger rather than hatred or hostility. Anger can be extremely useful and appropriate. Anger is a signal that relationship is damaged. It is an arm of justice. And often those who tell us to sit on our anger want us to sit in the status quo. So we don't need to give anger greater, blow it up by resistance to it, but just treat it as a passing feeling. As all our feelings are impermanent and don't try to turn it into, distort it, into call it by calling it, uh, distort uh, by identifying it with hatred or hostility, as is uh, done by some great Buddhist teachers. Even the Dalai Lama, I've heard him do this, whom I, and I revere him. So, but I think that this is an inheritance of the patriarchy. <clears throat> There's institutional reasons for having us eschew. Phew for having us avoid anger or quell anger. Uh, anger is subversive. Anger calls attention to what isn't working. Anger can be, I believe, entirely appropriate if we don't fuel it that was by our fear of it. Just let it say in. And uh, I remember in completing my response to your question, uh, an instance in the Tibetan community that's a very important part of my life um, in northwest India, a community in exile. And uh, I was in the puja room. They'd call me back for the teachings that I had referred to before. And a monk was showing me an extraordinary uh, new uh, rupa, new statue, Maybe, I don't know how many years it had been there, but I just hadn't really, they'd moved it out. And it was of a wrathful form of the Buddha. Oh, so such an embodiment of anger. And the eyes were bugging out, and the hair was on fire, and the teeth were fangs, and there were uh, coils of skulls and wrapping them in snakes around torso and limbs and, and he had dagger in his three arms on the right side and hearts he was 
human hearts dangling from the aorta in the um, left arms and, and the cutting out the heart of the three poisons. And so as all this was being pointed out to me, uh, my dear monk friend who was just the image of such great delicacy and equanimity and loving kindness. And he said, oh, such great anger. Oh, such great anger. Straight from the heart of compassion. Straight from the heart of compassion. So uh, that's been my experience. If we don't uh, turn it into uh, a weapon by being afraid of it. I've had a tendency toward anger in my life and I have um, let loose, particularly verbally. I'm very uh, quick with my... You've noticed I speak well. <laughs> when you should hear me when I'm angry, I, it's like you can see flames coming out. My father was like that. Uh, so this has been a big, big issue for me in my life. So you people know how to touch into central issues. So uh, is this a new topic? Oh, okay. It's a question of um, not, I don't see it as giving it. It's a, it's a place to be. It's a dwelling place. It's, it's one of the aspects of the dwelling place in our interconnectedness, along with loving kindness and compassion and, and equanimity in there. Sometimes they become almost indistinguishable, as we were talking before about pain for the world. And so, in a situation of scarcity, um, you don't give it. You see if where it is. And maybe that's a good place to close because our scarcity now is time. That you're not inventing these. We're not producing them. We're not making it up. These are just ascertained as aspects of this bodhisattva experience or of our true experience being. And actually I brought the flip chart in because I was going to draw some images to illustrate and an image has been very important for me is the neural net. We're like waking up is like waking up to our interconnectedness like being nerves in a neural net. 
And that is very much like our true nature in the web of life. So you don't need to produce mudita. You can invite it. <laughs> you can get out of its way. I just wanted to say something really quick because the, the one thing that I realized today that was the ingredient of being in that space was the feeling of connectedness. And I have certainly have felt it many times with the people I work with that have very, very little and I hadn't put it together that sometimes it's just the presence of really being willing to be there with that person that then this magic happens and it's this joy that's beyond like the most dire circumstances. And the people I work with, I mean, some of them are so strong. That's the answer. Thank you. Thank you. Did y'all hear that? All right, we'll close on that. Just yes. say that again. Just sheer presence. Not be afraid of the other person's pain. Yeah, I guess, and I've just realized it today. I I work with homeless people in San Francisco, and a lot of them, you know, really strung out on drugs, and yet these incredible magic moments happen, even in the most dire (laughs) life. Um, And I, what I find is that. Just by being willing to be there, then there's connect- the connection is established, and in that moment is when the joy happens, and it's beyond the circumstance. It's just, I think, the presence that makes it happen. So. Thank you for this morning. Oh, let me say, uh, lunch, and then uh, the afternoon session be- with Jack begins here at 1.45. series of four, it comes right after compassion, karuna, which is grief with the griefs of others, to be so open, uh, so allowing yourself to be interconnected, to experience your interconnections with all beings, that you can experience their grief as your grief. And uh, that, we have a word for that. It's compassion in all the languages. Mitleid in German. What is it in French? I'll tell you after the break. (laughs) And um, mudita is just the other side of the coin of compassion. To the extent that we allow ourselves to be open to the pain of others, we find ourselves open to their joy. It is joy in the joy of others. Karuna is grief with the grief in the grief of others or with the grief of others. Mudita, joy in the joy of others. Which is actually how I have 
used it in English, termed it in English in my writing and teaching and practice. It is often translated sympathetic joy, which is okay. In Sarvodaya movement, it was uh, practiced and, and evoked as the joy that comes in service. And particularly as a village came together on a work project, digging a well or thatching a school roof or cleaning an irrigation canal, then they would speak together of the mudita they felt, the joy in the service performed. You don't know about that. It's a little bigger than what that connoted, I discovered, than what that had connoted for me. And I was not surprised that there is really not a word for mudita in English. That's why I was using joy and the joy of others have been, I think a word for it will emerge in another generation. I know what the, it would be the opposite of, I think, or it have many opposite. One is envy. Envy, one of the most sapping and demeaning emotions and, one of, and very pervasive. We use it to make our economy run. We use it to keep uh, an economic system going based on the illusion of scarcity. We use it to keep private property, people fixed on possessions and property. It's extremely useful. So mudita is subversive. Mudita is the capacity to actually, when you find yourself confronted with a brother-sister being who seems to have better fortune than you at that moment, in luck, uh, with qualities or with assets that uh, you would covet uh, to actually take pleasure in that. You know, so it's so no wonder there's there's no word for it in English. <laughs> you know, the Buddha didn't say uh, there was no self. He never did say that, that, as you know. He just said the concept of self is not to be taken seriously. Uh, it doesn't really exist, but he didn't say there's no self. But he did say the big stumbling block. Watch out, watch out for mamata, mindness. 
to think you can own something. Watch out for that. Watch out if you think that there is something that is yours. That's a trap, a pitfall, delusion, source of great suffering. Then, oh boy, or something that should be yours or can be yours. Then the prison walls of a separate self begin to solidify in aggression and in need. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly easy, I had always found, to feel compassion. Oh, poor so-and-so. Oh, I just feel terrible. But you know how you feel when somebody walks into the room, say you're at your workplace, and they say, guess what? You know that grant I applied for? It just came through. Or I'm just leaving for two weeks in the Bahamas, and there's that moment. <laughs> just a moment where just drops and then you say oh I'm so happy for you <laughs> but there's you have to often force it there's that we aren't taught how to take pleasure in the gifts of others and yet that is the most fertile soil for growing our own gifts is rejoicing in the gifts of others. So I love mudita. And we're going to be practicing that today. Uh, joy in the gifts of others, joy in each other, and first, joy in this most uh, uh, immediate other, <laughs> this breathing body that I inhabit and that you inhabit, uh, to become present to the tremendous uh, gifts that are right here that we walk around so off so long, day after day, sealed against. And our society, our hurried, rushed, noisy, noisy, hassled, hustled society makes that easy to do. You know, that's why you're here. To come home to the great gift of life and the great gift of the Dharma. And one of the first things I learned, as doubtless you have did too, is you begin Buddhist practice with that uh, double gratitude. Uh, with every time you sit down, every day you start, the gratitude for being given a human life. And I add to that, a human life, and that's not being anthropocentric. It's that in a human life, it's not that it's better than any other life form, but it's, a, it's accountable and it can choose. We, as the Buddha say, we can change our karma 
that is what is distinctive about the human realm. We are born into this moment capable of that choice thanks to the long journey we've made through the lifetime of this planet into forms where self-reflexive consciousness has grown, where we can choose. They recognized how rare that was to be given a human life. Through many images, like the turtle that swims in all the oceans of the world, one turtle, and in all those oceans there's one board with a hole in it, and he comes up, puts up his head in the oceans every hundred years, and how often would it be that his head would come up and just fit through that one hole in that one board in all the oceans? Although that is the odds for your getting a human life. So congratulations. <laughs> And the second gratitude, that you are born into a time. You not only have a human life, but that you are born into a time when you, is a time when you can hear the Dharma. This is a Dharma time. It's a time where the Dharma is being taught. That's not true of all times. And you were born into such favored circumstances that you were able to hear the Dharma, run across it. And not only that, you were so endowed that you pricked up your ears and said, hmm, say that again. Remember? Can you remember the first time? Ooh, something just went by. <laughs> and you responded. And you're so favored by uh, your karma that you were able to uh, have the leisure, give yourself a little breathing space to study and to practice. So you call that to mind. That's the second great gratitude of being able to hear and, and, and practice the Dharma. And so, of course, you know, the immediate response to uh, a gift of gratitude, of, of generosity, of course, is to say, is gratitude. And uh, so you practice for the sake of all beings. Now, I don't know at what point you'd say, ah, murita is coming up there in this letter, but murita, that joy, comes up there, uh, in that all the time. Mudita, response both in being a channel for generosity and in receiving generosity. Mudita, in being part of the web of life, a conscious part of the web of life. So, what does that mean for us today? Joy? You gotta be kidding. In a time like this? 
joy when we know that we're such a fragile little veneer, socio-economic veneer, uh, one of our civilization being undermined so swiftly by ecological and economic and political forces. Joy in a time when people are slaughtering each other in just about every culture on the globe and in our own cities. Joy in a time when so many are hungry and the forests are burning, not just in the Amazon, but here. So we're talking about a joy that can be found in the dark. We don't have to turn away from the pain to find this joy. Sometimes you find it by looking into the dark, and there you see it incandescent, or feel it in your heart, that you are the bearer of it. This kind of joy does seems to have little relation to your fortunes or misfortunes of the moment. I want that kind of joy. The Buddha wanted us to have this kind of joy. Do you know a lot of the teachings in the early scriptures uh, have a number of words for joy that were then, in the early, early ones, that were then kind of combed out of them by the uh, super-monastic Theravadan tradition? Even the uh, wheel of causality, which was about the arising of suffering, there were factors of bliss and joy in there. And when I was uh, inside practice, this is my main practice, but I've been given some Tibetan practices in connection with, because of the anti-nuclear work I do. My Tibetan friends wanted me to have them for uh, uh, fearlessness. And uh, I was struck by how they are pervade, how pervaded they are by joy. And I'm like, you know, Eskimos having so many words for snow. There's so many words for joy, different qualities of joy. There's Gawa up here relating in this chakra when you're doing the cleansing, relating to the joy in the body. And there is Chega here, relating to the joy of communication. Isn't that sweet when you hear or speak or there are no words and that minds meet? That's this joy. And the joy here of the Sherabishi. Uh, Gawa, choka, choka. 
Yeah, that kind of joy that's infused with blissful feelings. And then a joy down here. And Chichikawa joy. And that joy is uh, located, identified with the navel. And that is just. <laughs> and and uh, the, uh, my monk uh, interpreter and uh, long haired yogi teacher. Uh, whom you wouldn't have thought to be, they were trying to get this across in their limited, you know, Tibetan, my non-existent Tibetan, and this translator's limited English, but uh, that seems from their efforts the most appropriate translation I can find, just, <laughs> So I'd like us to be explorers of, of um, the forms of mudita and uh, what our particular makeup, life history, uh, endowments allow us to experience and perceive. What joy is there waiting to awaken in you this morning, this week? What joy is there that you once knew that you can welcome again? You'd almost forgotten. What joy is there that can be shared? And it may be something you couldn't even find words for, like that Lenchi Chikawa joy. But open to it. And so we're going to open to it by a walking meditation together. Uh, first, I guess, let me think. We'll take uh, just a few minutes now, five minutes of silence to um, come out of the words. And then I'll, I'll ring the bell, and we will put our um, cushions. Let's see what we'll do. We're going to do I'll tell you later. <laughs> Now you can think I'm going to be sitting here silently thinking about that. <laughs> okay, let's just have a little silence. A teaching for me this morning has been the connection, the strong connection between joy and gratitude. That just has emerged for me, and then I, in the small group, I heard emerged for others. And we even were speaking of it earlier, but I, it was not consciously planned. That's and generosity. Joy seems to be like the aura surrounding those two dancing 
hands of generosity and gratitude. Maybe the dance is joy, or something was out of it. I was knocked out by uh, the same Tibetan teaching I got. And it's interesting to tell fellow Vipassana practitioners that uh, in... Um, who here has done a Tibetan practice? Oh, a bunch of you. Well, then you... Um, in the um, Guru Yoga, uh, they part of the preliminaries when you are practicing the capacity to give yourself uh, to and gratitude to the teachings uh, or to the Buddha, to the Triple Gem, uh, to life. And uh, in that, you uh, practice it in your visualization. This takes various forms. Uh, but it's like turning yourself into a soup and ladling it out, this very beautiful, exquisite imagery of, you know, dismantling yourself and putting yourself in your brain pan and cooking that <laughs> over, the, over the three times and um, And then this, I would never say, talk like this outside of a group that wasn't as serious in the true sense as this, because it could sound trivializing. You all know I'm not trivializing, I hope, but uh, to gallop through that. But in that, then you, you, know, you offer it mentally, so you're offering yourself. And so at a certain point, to the Buddhas, to the Bodhisattvas, to the devas and akinis, to the protectors, and to the six realms. And uh, in the, and this is so, you've concentrated on this, this is the most precious nectar in the world. You know, everything you've ever known, glimpsed, been, has gone into that, and all the gifts you've received, everything. And, uh, it's rich beyond tears, beyond joys, beyond everything in it. Even a drop of it, they say, can heal a, uh, bring to life a dead tree. And then, uh, in your mind, you, you're offering it, and uh, to all these beings, and then it becomes gradually clear to you, and that's then part of a formal part of the practice, that realization that the giver and the gift and the receiver are one. And that dance of giving, receiving, and being transformed, being consumed, is going on in our bodies this minute in our mind bodies, it is the dance of life. So the aroma that arises must be joy. That's what came so strong 
to me today. Generosity is so often uh, conveyed in moralistic terms. We ought to be nice to people, and we ought to share our cut our coat in half like St. Anthony, or we ought to better do this or better do that. And to know that generosity, that giving, and that receiving. And for some of us, says this born Calvinist, it's easier to give than receive. But all of, of that is so one, one dance. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're the giver or receiver. Or the gift. Mm. <laughs> We're going to do another walking meditation inside. Um, and before that, I'm going to introduce it because it's going to be about, it's inspired by um, reflections on generosity. Um, we're all bodhisattvas. That's what we're waking up to know. And we're all know already about generosity. But we have to comb away some of the confusion, some of the fears, mm -hmm. to get back to that, and some of the clutching. There's a wonderful poem of Rilke's in the Book of Hours, where he says, Oh God, if I had been born, if I had grown up in some generous place, full of ease in my being, I wouldn't clutch at you like this, so needy and tight. I could toss you into the air, into the ringing air like a ball for another to catch. Mm -hmm. Now we all know about generosity because we are uh, bodhisattvas, um, whether we are aware of that or not, and also because we are born of this earth, the fruit of this earth, of an exquisite long journey through time. panoramic procession of beings leading up to this moment in which we appear in this particular form.
And that event, that gesture, that is the universe itself, is an act of tremendous generosity. Now, I didn't learn that first from a, the scriptures, not Dharma scriptures. I learned it from a secular writer, a storyteller. So I'm going to tell you the story. It's from Cosmic Comics <laughs> by an Italian storyteller named Italo Calvino. This book is a collection of stories about the narrator's journey through time from the very beginning of time, which contemporary scientists are tend to call the Big Bang. When matter energy swelled out from some where, some point, there is a um, theory that developed with astronomer Edwin Hubble that by the velocity of the expanding galaxies you can determine when, and they figured it's 15 billion years ago, all the matter, as we count years, all the matter energy in the universe was concentrated in one point. Very minuscule. And um, so in this, in this book of stories, the protagonist who tells it has, is remembering his journey. He is remembering the journey we all made. Now, maybe when we get enlightened enough, we'll be able to remember too. But meanwhile, Quiffic, that's his name. It's hard to pronounce because in these stories, the names carry no vowels. Some of them are equations. And Quiffic um, is sort of, I suppose that's how you'd say it. <laughs> um, he tells the whole story. He was there, for example, one of my favorite stories was when he's a lizard and he had just evolved. He and his family had evolved, gotten up on dry land, and they're there with the other lizards, and he's telling just how it was. Uh, they're on Earth by this time, and they're so embarrassed because they've got an uncle who's still a fish. <laughs> and they try not to talk about it. He is just unredeemable. And he looks like a dogfish, Kyra, you know, with those fish with whiskers. And, they, and so they go out, and then and Quiffick, as, as, a, as a lizard, falls in love with a most elegant and uh, speedy young lizard. And she loves to run leap. And so he tries to keep his his uh, shameful uh, relative secret from her. He's embarrassed she should know about his uh, aquatic uncle. That's the title of the story. <laughs> but wouldn't you know, um, it's like my boys would come to pick me up and I'd hope they wouldn't see my father in his bathrobe. <laughs> and, and so they, <laughs> she, sees his uncle, and he's so embarrassed, he's trying to explain it away, and she's just fascinated. And do you know what? She falls in love with the fish, with the uncle, and she goes back. Now, so that's true. Some 
Some forms of life went back to the sea, and we did earlier, actually. At any rate, I want to tell you about my favorite story because it has to do with uh, generosity and with our uh, next walking meditation. It's called All in One Point because uh, Quiffick is, is remembering when they were there and at the beginning of this chapter is the citation from in italics from a scientific realm. According to the calculations of Edwin Hubble, we can calculate the velocity of the expanding galaxies, figure the time when all matter energy was con concentrated in one point. So then Quiffick starts talking, and he says, and boy, was it crowded. <laughs> when you figure that everything was there, I mean, everything. I mean, like the Vosges Mountains in Disneyland and the White House, the Pentagon, the Beryllium Isotopes, the Andromeda, the Nebula, Walmarts, everything. And, and you and me, we were just packed in there like sardines. Actually, that metaphor is a spatial metaphor and not entirely suitable can of sardines takes up space, but we didn't have any space, or time for that matter. You might remember it, you know, when you get enlightened enough, you might remember, because you were there. Now, contrary to what we might expect, it was not a situation conducive to neighborliness. Because in order to uh, feel neighborly. I suppose in order to feel the Brahma Viharas, you need to back off a little bit. <laughs> or say hi. <laughs> but you couldn't. You're just on top of each other. No distance at all. And it was particularly irritating with the Zoo family. They had all their kids and their camping equipment, their laundry always dry from one, they strung up from one end of the point to the other, and they're always talking, and it was really, it was irritating. <laughs> Except for one thing. And just to think of her, says Griffith, to think of her fills me with a generous and blissful emotion. Signora Pavacini. <laughs> now, in Italo Calvino's actual story, uh, he, her name is not Signora Pavacini. It's an equation, I impossible to say. I have dubbed her that. <laughs> and you may call her that, too. No copyright on that name. So, Quiffet uh, goes on. Do you remember her? Oh, just to think of her. her. Her breasts, her thighs, her orange dressing gown. Mm. You know, the fact that she was having an affair with Mr. <laughs> was... Um, <laughs> didn't seem to bother us. Everybody knew it, of course. I mean, in a point. 
If it were anybody else, I can't believe what would be said about her, but Signora Pavacini, and you see, when she would get into bed with Mr. K, then, well, all in one point, you, I mean, <laughs> we were all there. Maybe you have some faint memories of that, of the sweetness of that. So, in that respect, we could have gone on like that forever. Until one day, and we would have, except one day, and I guess that's when days began. <laughs> Signora Pavacini turned to us and said, Oh, darlings, what pasta I could make for you if I only had some space. <laughs> and as she said those very words, Oh, darlings, what pasta I could make for you, right then, suddenly there was this great explosion. And we could see her hands and her round arms, oh, shining with olive oil and dusted with the flour. And then in her hands, this great rolling pin. And in front of it, this mountain of sifted flour. And, and then rolling out. Oh, darling, so pasta I could make if I only had some space. <laughs> and then in this great explosion of light and matter and energy, suddenly we were seeing fields, like those I saw here, beautiful fields, growing the wheat that would make the flour. And also in some other fields, there were some gardens to make some salsa pomidoro, of course. <laughs> And then there was sky, of course, to hold a sun that would come to draw the seeds out of the earth. And clouds for the sun to draw, to drop moisture on the earth. And there has to be rivers to make the moisture and seas to hold the moisture. And clouds to draw it up in the great cycle of rain to draw forth the seeds. And then this planets itself have to be held in orbits around the suns and whole solar systems were being formed to make the pasta and whole solar systems held then and got in, in orbit in huge galaxies and galaxies spinning out through space, through space, through space, just as she said that, said those words. She, the first generous words expressed in that tight, little, petty, enclosed world of ours. Oh, if I only had some space, what pasta I could make for you. <laughs> See, the scientists don't tell us what came before the Big, big Bang. <laughs> and in the story, which almost ends with that, it's a page-long sentence. It's in paperback still. Go find it. Um, it concludes with that and says, and in that gesture, we're all spun out, all of us together. 
through the universe, through countless life forms, to reach this place. Here we are at the moment to get here to Spirit Rock, or as he said, to Padua. In this universe of spinning solar systems and galaxies and Buddha fields, and Signora Pavacini, he didn't say Buddha fields, and but he did say, and we brought here together, and she, Signora Pavacini, scattered out through the universe in that act of self-giving. And now lost to us forever. But don't believe that for a minute. No, she's not. She's here. So part of the practice of any good bodhisattva and part of the mudita practice is to develop your capacities to detect Signora Pavacini. Aha! She lurks you know not where. <laughs> in unlikely places. And sometimes you could even glimpse her perhaps in the mirror. So this um, walking meditation is actually a form of a practice I often do in workshops called the milling. And it is, in this context, looking for Signora Pavacini. So I'm going to ask you to uh, clear. You don't have to push all the chairs all the way back, but we need a large open space in the middle. So we'll take our cushions and gear to the sides and push the front row of chairs back a little. That should work. Cook the lunch, I just understand. Uh, oh, this is great. What a wonderful room. Well, I need to move around for a minute. I'll shout for a minute, and then I'll come back. If you get sort of jammed up in the middle, we're out from that one point now. And if you find yourself all going in one direction, turn around and thread back through in the opposite direction. And spinning out and using these space 
edges of the space here. More room around the edges. That's good. And we're going to start out letting ourselves uh, really uh, feel some alacrity here. Because we are now on planet Earth, nearing the end of the 20th century. And people, there are a lot of people, and they're in a hurry. You know. <laughs> Hi, Leslie. And now you know what that feels like. So get into the body-mind set where you're uh, downtown uh, San Francisco, uh, Times Square. Well, I'm making a film about, movie about Times Square, and I've just hired you all as extras, and you are hurrying to important appointments. You're about to show up for an audition, or you're racing to get a quarter in the parking meter. And if you're all going in the same direction, turn around and thread back through. Oh, so many people to weave through, but there's a time is money. You know what that means. That's it. Try to use the space on the outside, too. Now, in all that hurry that characterizes our lives, we just begin to slow down a little bit. And you let us, we pass people, keep moving, but let your eyes engage. Oh, as your eyes meet another and you go by, you, oh, I'm not alone. Not alone here on this planet, in this planet time. And now you find yourself stopping in front of one of the beings, stopping dead still, and taking their right hand in your right hand. And if you put your hand up high, if you don't have a partner. Okay, there, look around. Okay, Leslie, you have you have found somebody? Because I'm here. Oh, good, I have a partner. Well, look, who showed up <laughs> in this planet time, in this moment I've been given to live? Their eyes looking back at me. Look into the being's face, take in the contour of that physical form, receive some of the psychic energy that you feel coming out through pores and eyes. Feel the aliveness in that hand. You're looking into the face of someone who chose, or it was chosen for them, 
to be here this morning at Spirit Rock, where you are, brought over five billion years of Earth's history to this moment To this moment, to be recognized by you. And maybe you know what there is of Signora Pavacini in this being. And maybe they're a stranger to you, so you just let your great big antenna dish of a don't know mind take that in. And breathe it in. And feel that that's really all you need to know about anybody. You don't need any curriculum vitae. Oh, if you're hiring them for a job, you'll want to know more. But you've got some essential information right there. And bow to that or give any other sign of uh, mudita. And move on. <laughs> there are many more stops on this walk. Right, using all the space, moving in between, letting your body's touch as you pass even. Ooh. <laughs> we know about that when we were all in one point. And again, we find ourselves in front of another being. And now we know there is, will be one extra, so I'm available. Open your mind as you, and take their hand in your right hand to feel that aliveness. They're really here. They're not anywhere else. <laughs> you know, there are plenty other places this person could have been today. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> they could have been catching up on their work. They could be uh, out at the beach. They could be 
you know. (laughs) And instead they chose to be here. They chose to be here to practice the Brahma Viharas. And you can only do that when you're doing it for the sake of all beings. You look at them, their decision to come here and open themselves to this practice. You know the root reason is for the sake of all. The root reason is generosity. You can't sustain it if you're just doing it for yourself. It short circuits. Allow yourself to feel the gratitude of all beings for them, that in spite of so many other things pulling at them, sorrows too, and disappointments, and frustrations, and leftover undone chores, and so much they have chosen to be here. to feel that great gratitude for their generosity. Do you see a little bit of Signora Pavacini in it? (laughs) So, bow to that or acknowledge that in any other way, your great joy in this generosity. And move on. And again, we can feel as we're moving through, like there were like a f- forest or like a bed of sea kelp. You know, the sea kelp at the Monterey Aquarium, and they flow, and they're always sort of they move around each other and touching each other, and you can let your fronds brush against other fronds. <laughs> And we find ourselves again in front of one other being. And this time we take our right hand in their, their right hand in our right hand, and as soon as we do, as soon as you've got it, uh, there's still some partners sorting out, but close your eyes, except those. Here's a, here's this thing go great. Now I want you to do your eyes closed so that all your attention can go into the sensation of touch. So you can really feel what is this object you're holding in your hand. It's alive. (laughs) 
You might take both your hands to feel it and turn it and flex it, the texture of it, the warmth of it, the limberness of it, with great curiosity as if you had perhaps just landed here on an extraterrestrial research mission from the outer galaxy and you were researching the dominant species. Note the extraordinary delicacy of the bone structure. The subtlety of the musculature. Note the soft, sensitive padding on palm and fingertips. It's naked. No shell here to protect it, no armor, no heavy padding or pelt. Evolved over millions of years, it's shed the defenses to be very vulnerable now, the better to know its world. So now it's very easy to break or burn or crush or irradiate. So vulnerable in order to connect. And this hand is connected with this world in unique, irreplaceable ways. You know, if you were anywhere in the outer galaxy, any corridor of space, and you were to meet this in the dark, you'd know you were home. Because <laughs> they only make it here. <laughs> Human hand of planet Earth. And it took, they reckon, five billion years for the life on this planet through all its changing conditions and evolving states and the life forms on it to shape this, a human hand of, hu of planet Earth. And this hand carries all that history in it. And as you hold it now, as you turn it to your, in your hands and feel it with all your senses, but not your eyes, you can open your mind to that journey that is made. Almost as if you could see that journey as in time-stop photography. You know, it was a fin once, they say, in the primordial seas where life took form just as it was again in, in this last lifetime in the mother's womb. And all the shapes that's gone through since then, and all the dyings, dyings to old forms. 
and birthings of new form, but it's been an unbroken succession that has brought that hand. Of transformers and survivors straight through millions of years to beat now in your hand and to let you grasp it. And ventures are pushing up. It pushed up on the dry land. It learned to reach, to grasp, to climb. Look, see, only don't look. <laughs> Hearken. <laughs> how the how the thumb and forefingers can curl forward to meet that opposable thumb has allowed us to do so much. Carve Buddhas and get into trouble. And that is a gift of Grandmother Monkey, you know. See, as you, just the shape of a branch, how in that circle thumb and fingers make. Great for that prehensile grab and swing. And this same hand in its journey chipped stones, gathered reeds and wove them into baskets, played melodies on them like a flute, gathered seeds, planted them, gathered the seeds, made fire, carried the fire on the long marches through the ages of ice. built cities, silos, granaries, temples, sailing ships, violins, open-heart surgery, nuclear warheads, it's all there, and generations of healers in that lineage of hands. Can you feel them? Can you sense them? Can you sense the artists in that lineage of hands reaching back through time? And those who guided their brothers and sisters through the dark, when things were hard. It's all in that hand. And you can open your mind-body awareness to the story of this hand in this lifetime, too. Ever since it first opened like a flower when it came out of the mother's womb, clever hand that learned so much, learned right away to reach for breast or bottle, 
learn to write its name, to tie shoelaces, to throw a ball, to wipe tears, to give pleasure. And you know that there are people living now who believe that they are lovable and worthwhile because of what this hand has wordlessly told them. You may not ever meet the, these people, but you're connected with them now. And you know that there are people living now who will go into their dying with this hand their last touch And they will be able to know then, in that time of great passing, that they're not lost and not abandoned, still part of the great living dance, the great gift. And you know there are people living now who will be healed in mind or body by the power this hand allows to flow through it. Feel how strong is your intention welling up in you that this hand be well and safe and intact in the times to come for what this being to allow the generosity of this being to be expressed. So give them any last messages now while you're still in contact. Learn it by heart so that you'll know if you never meet it again, that there is this hand in your world. <laughs> it can be important knowledge. Now slowly, slowly withdraw. And don't open your eyes until you have separated and are milling again. We'll go back to our milling.
And one last time, we, in this milling, we find ourselves face to face with another being. This time we put our both hands together at shoulder height, palm to palm. Yeah. Put your hand up. If you're turned around there, there's somebody behind you. There. Okay. How is your Pavacini detecting capacity developing? Excellent opportunity at this moment to practice seeing the being in front of you as part of the tremendous incredible act of generosity that manifested our world. Saved until this moment. Here in this ongoing creation event, this form appears unlike any other that ever was or will be with unique characteristics in history. Yet in every single part and aspect, a part of the great song. And that song that is the generosity can you find it in them? Or is that what they are? Is that what you are recognizing? Each separate, each distinct, each unique, and yet part of that incredible, joyous event of continual self-offering and receiving. Out of that joy comes the desire to bless, to bless the powers in this person whom you know or may not know that they manifest now, that they've been carrying that the fear and the confusion and the doubt that has been there inevitably like clouds look at us, we're all dysfunctional, <laughs> that that dissipate, that they be freed from that. And prayers, unspoken prayers, deep desires, strong intentions for their strength and their clarity in this planet time we are going through together.
we belong together in this time. We need each other in this time to recognize who we are against all the voices that try to tell us something else. You assist this being by seeing them in their true nature. This is a gift you can continually give. Keep breathing. <laughs> and bow to that now. And I invite you to sit together. Uh, the milling itself is over and you can Pardon? Oh, you can't take take cushion or chair, and this last your last encounter. Stay together. I'm going to ask you to do a little sharing together. I was going to suggest you talk a little bit. <laughs> okay, take um, five minutes one way. I did, I, actually, I want to structure this. Only let's breathe a little bit together. I don't want what we're knowing together to get dissipated too fast. Let's have us take turns speaking what you remembered or recognized again in the last half hour in these encounters. And I'll uh, give a little bing when it's uh, time to switch. Go.
Switch.
We didn't push the paws down. We have some logistics to take care of. Um, there is. Signor Pavacini's had a hand in the lunch, I understand. <laughs> and it'll be served at 12.30 for half of you. And at one for the other half. So the great existential challenge facing us <laughs> is how to divide. And Marianne suggested that uh, we uh, <coughs> do it by, there's a practice of doing it for people who have been on a, done a, who've done a retreat, uh, a week long or more retreat, uh, go up on the first shift. Uh, Okay, who's hungry now? Stand up. Maybe half the people. Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, great. Oh, and Marianne, can you stand up and see if that's half? That's not quite. Maybe the few more hungry people. All right. Oh, that's great. Thank you for your intervention. All right. So uh, before you leave, uh, you know who's going. Sit down a minute so that I can uh, take my leave of you because I'm going to stay here till. Oops. Uh, so I can take my leave of you because I won't be here this afternoon. My husband is just coming back from a week's vision quest in the Utah Canyonlands that included a four-day fast on his solo. And I'm going to pick him up so I attach great importance to that and a lot of curiosity. <laughs> what? Oh. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> right. Mm. Uh, so, those of you who are going to um, go eat now, I just don't feel very blessed by our morning. And it never had connected with me so clearly as this morning, the connection between joy and generosity. That's, I'll carry that the rest of my life. Hmm. Well, as we have five minutes, if there's uh, any comments that of uh, those of you, because I'm going to stay on until those uh, and eat with at the one o'clock shift. So those of you who are going, if you have any reflections, comments, questions, anything you'd like, we can't. We'll take ten minutes. 
of um, I was sitting up here rem- remembering uh, the when I was in gra- I went back to graduate school uh, in my 40s. You're an extremely good student when you've raised three children and go back to school in your 40s. Oh, you know how to make each minute count. You have tremendous powers of concentration because you've had to do so much in those little bit of times. You had to be some mental breathing space. And at any rate, um, I did one of my uh, doctor's comps on um, the Hindu sacrifice and realization that the very, the, I was sort of making fun, if you didn't pick it up before, about technology of sacrifice and talking about the Buddha's time. And it had be- gone to absurd uh, forms and degrees then. But uh, early in the Vedic myths, uh, very early on, the creation was generally seen as, a, as sort of Pavacini style of sacrifice. Often it was Prajapati or uh, the uh, Lord Brahma himself, some, uh, the one. Uh, who was lonely and uh, wanted to bring forth a world. And to bring forth a world, it was out of a self-offering. That got shifted a bit. And I never picked that up in the Judeo-Christian. That I mean, God was still separate from the world. But early, those early uh, mythic apprehensions of reality, which are so, have so much of the mystic and the poetic in them, see it as a creation of tremendous act of giving of one's very being, a spending of oneself. I believe, despite all our conditioning, to grab and clutch and hoard and pile it up. Our greatest urge is to spend ourselves profligately, extravagantly. (laughs) So don't be fooled by people's exteriors. even those who seem the most complacent and tied up with their things. That's not their heart desire. The piling it up isn't. It's the spending, it's the giving, like a fountain. That's our true nature.
And that means letting it flow through all the time. You've given me an extraordinary gift this morning by your receptive attention. You've drawn out some beautiful stuff from me. I Even I could tell that. <laughs> See? But it's this. This is the great, uh, the character of the great awakening of our time. And it's not really laid down. Um, we have to sort of free it a little bit from the hierarchical uh, forms in the traditions that we've inherited to realize again the highly participative nature of the awakening that we are to make now. We can't get enlightened alone. It doesn't matter if we get enlightened alone. We have got to wake up as a people or else it's curtains. And we can do it. Because we all come from that fundamental, primordial, ongoing act of generosity. We embody that. So, well, uh, bon appétit. part about the um, what I've experienced as I mean for years I could not get joyous about other people's joys and I've been able to heal that in myself to a large extent and the flip side of it has been people uh, my projections of people's envy onto my good fortunes and um, and I've had many good fortunes in my life and um, often have felt afraid to share them to the extent that I would like to. Mm -hmm. and this is an interesting question. Do you all hear that? No. I'm going to try to rephrase it, so keep talking. So it's up till now, it's the question of um, the... F she says... What's your name? Joni. Joni says that... Um, She's uh, been able to overcome, uh, to a large degree, the uh, conditioning of, of envy. But there's the other side of it, and that is imagining or believing or projecting that others are envy of her good, good fortune. And how to deal with that. So that brings up a, uh, a wanting to, a fear of sharing your happiness, your good fortune, feelings of guilt. No, go on. 
that's, that, that's really it. I just wonder if you could comment on mm. that part of it, you know, how to feel that I can fully express my excitement about my life, which seems to get more joyous all the time. And joy is an, an emotion that I just did not relate to at all, even a few months ago. And because um, I was really stuck in pain and sorrow and sadness and anger. And so as I welcome, you know, the full range of emotions and I'm even starting to experience a little bit of love, um, you know, it's like, well, I want to Wait, this is, body. yeah, it's not going to be, it's not hard at all. See, what you do <laughs> is, <laughs> no, it's real simple. You, uh, you get this rush of delight. Right? And, and that is, can be applied anywhere. In seeing someone. In, um, and you don't have to say, you know, I'm really glad because I just got a MacArthur Fellowship. You know, or, uh, or just look at the size of that rock. Or, you know, <laughs> what have you. But to um, just... You can practice transmuting it, transforming it immediately into uh, the pleasure of encountering what comes up. So you don't have to say, really, I'm glad because of, but, oh, Joni, it's so great to see you. You know, and you'll find that the happiness that you're, the mudita, is relaxing you to perceive and be open and care about, you know, so and give you sort of a, a capacity to be present. So how, how's it been with you lately? I'm so glad I can be, just be there to receive how you've been. I don't have to tell you all the wonderful things that have happened to me. Okay, so there's an easing of it. Once I get used to the, all the wonderful things... It <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have a friend to tell it to. Yeah. Yeah, but... Um, when you do sense that it could be hard for some people to hear. And I, can, I really identify with that. And um, then spare. You can spare someone. You know. Don't. Yeah. So it's all right. But you can bring the... But uh, it's... Don't feel... It's... The main thing is your is the delight and expansion that you feel. And then... Yeah. Transform it into attention. Yeah. Well, we want to know your joy, too, because it makes us feel better. <laughs> Maybe that'll give you some motivation. Good. And let's have some more comments on that, because this is something we all face, right? Yeah. Gwen, hi. share the good news about their successes. And the way it started to feel really good was that I felt like I was part of that, yeah. it for them. Like that part of their success came from who I had been in the workshop or who I had, you know, it was a long-term process. So, you know, who the support that we created for each other such that the success <coughs> happened. And I think that when 
I experienced success, others have a harder time feeling connected to it when I don't see that they're connected to it. But if I can see... Oh, that's beautiful. Are you all hearing that? Mm -hmm. Oh, right here. Take that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, essentially, I was just sharing that um, it's when I know that other people are part of my joy that, in fact, my joy wouldn't have happened outside the context of all of our interconnection. You know that, so I can actually even acknowledge them for the part that they played, and then they get to feel like they contributed to my joy, and that's a great joy to share too. So it's it's sort of when I don't try to own it all to, for myself and think that I'm the only, the, the, the only being on the earth that created this for myself, you know, that I was solely responsible. And to know that I wasn't is also a bigger joy for me because it's no greater joy than to remember the interconnection. You know, just the, the successes are, are kind of puny compared to feeling that they're part of a larger thing. And then there's um, what's uh, the, the generosity itself, that feeling, the joy, sort of, you know, uh, Signora Pavacini, that moment was feeling uh, full of um, love and joy, and she wanted to spend it in some way so that that joy would take the form of of um, an act, a hug or a big bouquet of flowers or doing the dishes or going up to save the redwoods. It seems to me that the one fundamental thing about generosity that I, I didn't hear you say very much today about what is the other side of it, is the receiving of it. Because without someone there to receive it, there, isn't, there is no generosity. 
So always that uh, awareness of gratitude. There are these two hands. Yes. I thought I'd honored that, but if you'd like to say some more about that. Well, maybe I'm just internalizing it for myself that, that, that I, I wander around on my own judgment, um, spending a lot of time wondering whether I'm doing the right thing, and I, my mind stays fixated there rather than, than just receiving it. You know, I've then noticed I've shared with my walk that that I spent a good portion of the time wondering how, how well was I going to be able to lead the other person around after she had led me around. Ah, oh, yeah. Instead of just receiving the gift as the gift has been given to me. Let's breathe that in. The joy we've been talking about, they say there's a joy. Some of us have tasted it or glimpsed it that is not dependent on having things the way we want it. That means even having a survivable world. And uh, that's been one of the big questions of my life. But I know that uh, trying to keep it separate is, is totally impossible because that involves emotional and mental surgery on oneself and that kills the psyche. It really, it does, it damages something, so you're incapable of joy. And uh, one of the, uh, Ernie mentioned the despair workshops. Um, we walked in those workshops, and I, that's, they're still basic to the workshops I will be leading. Uh, we walk right into the pain. If you try to hold it at arm's length, you're stuck with it. And there were a lot of wonderful practices for being able to be with it, breathing it through, sustaining the gaze. Really, okay, here it is. This is what, why you're born in this planet time. Our world is dying. There are things being destroyed that won't come again. The kids waiting to be born in this or the next generation aren't going to have what we had. How do we feel, feel, find joy in that? That's the koan of my life. And the way that uh, I've got near to the fountain of joy and felt it is to just, it's really, the amazing thing is that it's not separate. The great pain, the great grief, I learned was compassion. 
to suffer with your feelings. At the pain of that, there's nobody in this room who doesn't carry, nobody living now who doesn't carry pain for our world, despite their po politics. Their politics get crazier the more they try to separate themselves from their pain. We're seeing a lot of crazy politics now, and a lot of blaming other people, and a lot of divisive politics, because there is this terrible anguish, and we've got to find somebody to blame for it, instead of being able to be with the pain. And then when you be with it, you find that where it springs from is our profound interconnectedness. You're experiencing the trauma of your larger body. And do you know that that is what we want, to know that interconnectedness, that true nature, that paticca samuppada, the co-arising, the web, Indra's net. And that's where the joy comes from. So in some... Often, I have found the pain itself can be a doorway. If you go through the doorway, you find the joy. 